you just can't beat a nativity involving lots of kids. We, we went uh, to our school one early, earlier this week, um, or no, uh, on Monday, and it was just as sort of a chaotic and, and people waving at their parents, kids waving at their parents and forgetting their lines and walking that way and then walking that way. And, and it's, uh, it's, that's just as much as part of the fun, isn't it? So um, this, this Christmas, this month, our theme as a church for our services in December have been based on hope. <clears throat> the word hope, the idea hope. And this morning we're going to reflect on how we understand hope, how we use the word on a day-to-day basis, and then take a look at it from a biblical perspective in both the, the new, uh, both the old and the new Testaments. And I want to leave you this morning with a really clear understanding of why Christmas is so central to how Christians understand hope and how the reality of a hope based on Jesus is life-saving. Now, if I asked my three kids, who are 10, 8, and 5, what they are hoping for this Christmas. Greg's already laughing. What do you think they will say? Chocolate. Chocolate. A lump of coal. They won't be asking for a lump of coal. Don't say iPads. One of them's in here. They'll... Any other ideas? Toys. toys, toys, chocolates, that kind of thing. But what about you? If I asked you what you are hoping for this Christmas, what would you say? I heard that. That's coming up. Now, I'm not here to judge you one way or the other. If you want peace on earth this Christmas, that's wonderful. And I'm very happy for you. Equally, if all you're hoping for is at least one day on the couch with your feet up in front of the TV and easy access to food and a glass of Baileys, I get it. (laughs) Just don't bother coming around to our house where it will be various levels of bedlam. But if Rachel and I could come over to yours, (laughs) something to think about. But by and large, with the average day-to-day use of the word hope, it sits at a fairly surface level of wishful thinking or temporal, momentary gains. I hope it snows this Christmas. I hope my wife likes her Christmas present. I hope Aston Villa are top of the league for the new year. We may hope, but we can't be sure. And of course, hope can and does go deeper than worrying about weather and football games. In fact, the impression that thinking and studying about hope has had on me over these last few weeks is that hope 
is a universal, visceral, human experience. This is what Eric Erickson, a pioneering psychologist and development theorist in the 20th century, said about hope. Hope is the earliest and most indispensable virtue inherent in the state of being alive. Others have called this deepest quality confidence. And I have referred to trust as the earliest positive psychosocial attitude. But if life is to be sustained, hope must remain. Even where confidence is wounded and trust is impaired. Isn't that interesting? Erickson is saying that even in the face of challenges that may negatively affect our confidence and our trust, hope remains a vital force that sustains us and propels us forward in the journey of just being alive. Theodore Roosevelt, the 29th President of the United States, is recorded as once saying, when you're at the end of your rope, tie a knot and hold on. As it happens, I have some rope with me. Now, I, I, in preparing this sermon, I didn't sort of do a brainstorming session and thought, what words will rhyme with hope? And I, I land on rope. It's just so sort of, it's just happened um, rather well. Now, so look, if we tie a knot at the end of this rope, okay, and I'm going to hold on to this end with this rope. Okay, there's my knot, and I'm going to chuck this rope out. Just chuck it out. Just. So there we go. I get it. You know, I, I appreciate the, the importance that that Roosevelt and Erickson are placing on hope for our survival, but there are just too many unanswered questions for me. I've got this end, but who's got the other end? What is it attached to? How long do I hold on for? And where are we, are we even going with this? And what is the source of my hope? See, if, if hope is so central to our existence, surely the source of our hope needs to be more objective, more tangible, more knowable. So as we move into a biblical understanding of hope, we're going to start in the Old Testament and there's a significant shift in gear. And this is really important to understand because hope is no longer wishful thinking. The church leader and theologian Tim Keller who died this year, wrote 
that Christian hope is when God has promised that something is going to happen. And you put your trust in that promise. Real hope is certainty, not a possibility. Now, the idea of hope in the Old Testament is completely shaped by the promises of God. And believing that these promises can and should be trusted. These promises are given and fulfilled right from the beginning. For example, we have the covenant between God and Noah in Genesis. Understand, this is Genesis Genesis 6, understand that I am bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. God promises to save Noah's family. And he does. Or what about Abraham? His life teaches that God is faithful to his promises even when circumstances seem impossible. And despite challenges and doubts and uncertainties, Abraham's faith in God's promises was credited to him as righteousness. In Genesis 15, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to to him as righteousness. Abraham's enduring trust in God's faithfulness still serves as a lesson for believers, emphasizing that God is faithful to fulfill his word in his perfect timing and according to his sovereign plan. God's people in the Old Testament identify with and feel a sense of belonging to the growing history of promises that are fulfilled. And these promises continue a theme of rescue with Moses and how God promises to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. And then we get to King David, with whom God makes a covenant, promising that one of his descendants would establish an eternal kingdom. Let's read 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 13. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, when you die, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Wow. What a promise. Now make a mental note of this promise, because we're going to refer to it again. And at this point, God's people are very well versed 
in God's promises being fulfilled and shaping their destiny. So it makes sense to learn that the Hebrew word, and Hebrew is the language that most of the Old Testament is written in, the Hebrew word used for the word hope is kava. Can you say kava? And the best way to translate kava back into English is to wait. And specifically, waiting with expectation. For example, in Psalm chapter uh, 20, Psalm 27, verse 14, Wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart be courageous. Wait for the Lord. In Lamentations, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Hope and wait are used together, emphasizing trustful anticipation and patient waiting. Now, kava comes from the root Hebrew word kav, which means, you guessed it, cord or rope. And kava conveys this idea of tension in a rope that is being pulled. So if I've got this end, right, Theo, can you pick up that end? Right, now I want you to pull it, okay? Pull it and hold on to it. Now you can see, right, that's slack, that's tension. You can see the tension in the rope. I can feel it, okay? And that growing tension is, is kava. It's the feeling of expectation while you wait for something to happen. Hold on to your seat there, Theo. Okay, you're going to be there for a while. So if we go back to King David and this descendant of his who God promises will lead to an eternal kingdom, the people of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, have every reason to believe that the king is coming. They are waiting with expectation. Their waiting has been defined by a proven track record covering thousands of years of God delivering on his promises. In fact, the two forces pulling to create the kavah, the tension, are the Israelites, God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And the promise of God to give them a Messiah. Their king who was going to rescue them out of the darkness of this world. Some of the most famous predictions about the Messiah in the Old Testament were written almost 900 years before he appeared. Let's look at Isaiah. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Hundreds of years before it happened. Now make a mental note of that promise too, because we're going to refer to it again. 
Isaiah chapter 9, for a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. For generations, God's people have been waiting expectantly for their Messiah, and the tension has been growing. You all right, dear? Yeah. And then on that first Christmas, 2,000 years ago, finally that tension was released. And with it, the New Testament begins. What happened? Jesus was born. Luke chapter 2 tells us why. Mary had given birth in Bethlehem and the angels appeared to some of the shepherds to announce his birth. Let's read from verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people today in the city of David. A saviour was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favours. Now, if a host of angels appears to you to let you know that the Messiah has come, there's every chance you're going to believe them. But do you remember that first mental note I asked you to make about the prophecy regarding the offspring of King David. The angels know, in fact, they've been instructed to refer to King David in the delivery of this good news. Because this is how God's people will know this is God's promise being fulfilled. The fulfilment of God's word, the reference to scripture is more important than the impressive experience of angels appearing to you with a message. And that connection with King David is front and centre of their news. And the shepherds will have picked up on that immediately. If they will have known anything about their faith, it will have been about the coming Messiah from the house of David. The birth of Jesus is intricately connected to the messianic promises found throughout the Old Testament. Even angels sent from heaven with a direct message from God himself refer to promises made in scripture several hundred years before the event. 
When Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and his first response was to cancel their engagement because he knew he wasn't the father, an angel appeared to him and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because that has, what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Coming back again to that first mental note I asked you to make, both Mary and Joseph were from the line of David. And this is why they had to go back to Bethlehem in the first place for the census. And Joseph will have absolutely understood the context of a baby being born to Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit to be the long-awaited Messiah when Gabriel began with Joseph, son of David. When Gabriel delivered the news to Mary and she was shocked and confused and said, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Do you remember that second mental note I asked you to remember about the 900-year-old prophecy from Isaiah that the virgin will conceive? When Gabriel responds to Mary with, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Mary responds by saying, See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me, as you have said. In that moment, Mary will have absolutely understood her role in the fulfillment of this long-awaited promise that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. This was one of the critical details of the prophecy. After the birth of John the Baptist, just months before Jesus, the book of Luke records that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he says, he has dealt mercifully with our fathers and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Promise, 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 promise. Fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. There are hundreds of promises made in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament. And at least 190 or so that include a personal reference to Jesus. Hope as we understand it in the Bible, has always been about waiting with expectation, based on a proven track record of promises being fulfilled. In fact, that is the definition of faith. It is not a blind step into the dark, but a confident stride with the testimony of Scripture to light your path. 
And there is no greater testimony than the birth of Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Because the birth of Jesus represents the dawn of a new era. Embodying the hope of reconciliation of humanity with God. Christianity uniquely amongst all the religions emphasizes the incarnation, the belief that God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. God becoming flesh underscores the the idea of a personal, intimate relationship with God. The Christian hope is anchored in the belief that God entered into human history, experienced human life, lived it perfectly without sin, died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins and rose again to defeat death, reconcile us with God and promise those who put their faith in him to have eternal life. Jesus brings a new understanding and meaning of the word hope. He shoulders it. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Our hope is now secure in him. Because of him. Because of his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The New Testament was mostly written in Greek. And here the word for hope is elpis, which also means trust. But more importantly, in the Bible, the word is based on the person of Jesus. And he is referred to as our living hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have this rope. And I bought this rope from a car boot sale and the person told me it was used probably to drag tractors, cows, maybe even farmers themselves out of muddy fields. But now the rope we have been using becomes a lifeline to save us from the mud that we're stuck in. And we're going to die. It's not unlike Roosevelt's initial analogy, but this time we know who's on the other end. Theo, can you pick the rope up again? So Theo, you're Jesus this time. Okay. Jesus throws everyone this lifeline. It's our choice to take it. But when we do, we can wrap it round us, totally secure, and let Jesus draw us 
to himself. C.S. Lewis says, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. We are meant to have the rope wrapped around us so that Jesus can pull us in. Hope for the future, that we will be redeemed. Hope for the present, that we are not alone, but are loved and have purpose. Hope even for the past, that our failures and our struggles are not greater than God's power to transform us. And the testimony of the Howes family that we were honoured to hear last week is wonderful evidence of hope for the present, the future, and even the past. They know that suffering does not have the last word. Because deep down, their faith in God and the authority of Scripture enables them to choose hope. Deep down, they know that Jesus has got the other end of the rope. And if you are here, and if you are at your wit's end, But nonetheless, this morning, you have chosen to be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters. You do so because of the hope that Jesus is in your life. And well done for acting in faith and being here. Eric Erickson, the psychologist, was was right. Hope is about life. The opposite of hope is despair. It's giving up. It's death. And if you are feeling despair at the moment, I am here to tell you right now, today, this Christmas, because of Christmas, that you don't have to live in that place. Jesus, your creator God, is alive. He defeated death. He sustains life and he invites you to turn to him for hope in this life and for everlasting life with him in heaven. At that first Christmas, a new understanding of hope was birthed, literally. And that hope contextualizes and promises a true and complete understanding of hope and it is freely available to anyone who puts their faith in Jesus.